My name is Andrew McGowan. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical Trequartista, I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, underdiscussed, or particularly important to a sustainable high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Um, today, I wanted to talk about something that I feel like I experience a lot at this point in the year, that... I'm pretty sure other people do too, and they just don't talk about it. And that's uh, the summer grind. I think there's this kind of crazy notion because um, particularly if you're involved in some kind of academia context that like the summer is the time to get everything done because there's space in as much as uh, the spring semester is the time to take on all these crazy projects because we perceive there to be more space. And there isn't. Our perception of time is just different. And because uh, for a lot of us, um, through from working like so incredibly intensely um, from August to May, um, taking this time to rest is extraordinarily important and not and, and dramatically more powerful than I think folks give it credit for. Can you get away with summer grind? Yes. Um, I'm going to break down what mine has kind of looked like and why I've started to see problems with it. Because, And the reason I wanted to do this episode is not because I have like some crazy solution for everybody. In fact, the opposite is true. Um, I find that I'm trying to be so relentless in my pursuit of growth that it's actually causing me problems. Which is ironic. Uh, but so I wanted to break down a few things and uh, kind of talk about like what my restorative activities are and if I find that they've been helpful and what I'd like to do going forward and, um, some of the things that I've been struggling with as far as like trying to keep myself fulfilled enough to continue to read every day, to do ear training every day, to practice, um, at least five days a week, but hopefully play the euphonium at least seven um, if at all possible, make sure I'm getting enough sleep, make sure I'm being recreated, make sure I'm staying healthy and have a job because like, that's the difficult part about being a musician in this phase of my life. I'm like not experienced or accredited enough to teach at a university, but like, um, I'm too experienced and too accredited to be, um, like not relentlessly pursuing growth. And I think that's really common for folks, especially once you've gone to university. Um, It's weird to just take a break for a little bit because it's so accessible to a lot of us to want to pursue growth relentlessly. Um, And ironically, the thing I've kind of learned from this is that like... um, even if you embrace the idea that life is about the journey, not the arriving, if you're so concerned with cultivating your journey 
like you're not focusing on like the day to day of it and the why of what's all happening and really mentally processing everything that you're you're doing your destination becomes putting one foot in front of the other instead of like the lofty def- destination of some kind of achievement um and really attaining like the immense critical thinking and um the literacy of your profession is dramatically more important than just the achievements you can check off from a list um or have some kind of legacy to write on your tombstone if you choose to have one and i've been struggling with that this summer um it's it's a busy semester i mean like coming out of the pandemic, I think a lot of institutions, because things were able to be back in person, at least in Illinois, it seems this way. I can't speak for everybody, but it seems like a lot of places really overprogrammed on a lot of the performances because they wanted to make the most of being able to be back together in person, which I totally understand. But like the expense of that was everybody just assumed that things were going to go back to normal, but people have become desensitized to how overstimulating the world was. Um, before the pandemic and so now we're reckoning with this like perpetual exhaustion and internet addiction of like wanting to consume all of this content and um, supposedly spend time with other people but it's turning a lot of people into like these zombies that are just exhausted all the time and if we take this moment to revisit the newtonian law of creativity which states that um, your output is directly proportional to your input means that like if you have less mental bandwidth going into your creative projects then you're more likely going to see less powerful results less significant results less detail-oriented results Uh, even if you carve out little parts of your day to really do intense work on it which i find to be extraordinarily helpful and powerful in a lot of different ways because every once in a while i'll hit a state of flow and i'll have like I'll catch lightning in the bottle for some project and I write it down immediately because I'm so worried that I'll forget. Um, And a lot of those projects tend to be really, really cool, but it's one thing to have lightning in a bottle where your brain can have 18 ideas that for a really like integrally, integrally structured composition, for example. Um, And like sometimes I'll have the idea, I'll have, I'll have everything from, um, what the theme might be to how I'm going to structure it to what the form should be to how I'm going to sequence in the forms like what the tonal centers of each of the sections of the form might be to how the harmony might be uh, progressed to how I'm going to if it's a theme and variations for example how I will cycle through the variations stylistically um, I mean I might have all of those ideas and then like have two and a half paragraphs about like what the piece is really about and why that's speaking to me like I can get all of that in 18 minutes sometimes but I still have to uh, curate the time to sit down and write out each of those actual sections and put down um, notes on the page and really sit with the piano and figure out, like, did, does the idea for the harmony that I had when I conceptualized it actually work? And how much do I need to workshop it in order to make sure that, like, the musical ideas are intuitive and thoughtfully sequenced? And that's a lot. Because I don't just want to throw paint on the canvas. And I don't mean to 
make fun of people who just throw paint on the canvas because that can be an extraordinarily interesting way of creating interesting color blend. Um, but it's, for lack of a better term, it can be a bit Cajun uh, for me sometimes. And again, not to say that Cajun things are bad, um, because John Cage is a genius, and if you don't think so, you really need to go read any of his lectures, because uh, he was a visionary and very ahead of his time. Uh, but my personal view is that, that it's powerful to have a balance between um, these like very chance-based, very chaos-based, um, and profound order-based sections of our art-making. Um, I heard Nancy Vandeveed um, say this very eloquently at a master class. I, I was a sophomore in college. She is probably one of the most interesting composers I've ever come into contact with. And if you don't know her music, you really, really need to look it up. It, she's so fascinating. Um, but she was talking about how when uh, there was a point in her educational career where she was studying and um, everyone fell into two camps. It was either the, um, you were either a, Cajun or a hyper serialist and there were really no people in between that and I think striking a balance between those two is the most powerful way to leverage all of the axioms of this and you can see this in our making uh, in a couple of very very profound examples I think WC and Ravel do this extraordinarily well um, Stravinsky obviously there are a few things any composer that is lived since Igor Stravinsky that they have done that has done something more profound or better than he has and I really believe that um if you want a more modern example uh I think Steve Bryant does an exceptional job also um Ecstatic Waters is a great example of how to balance the idea of like excessive order in some cases and um absolute chaos in others and where does finding the balance in that chance actually happen? And it's very powerful to be able to leverage your art artistic mechanisms in those ways. But we've gotten off topic, as usual. So this idea of like um, input and output being directly proportional, that means that you have to give your brain enough space to not only rest, but really like process the things that it does and if you don't have an opportunity in your life to have fun that becomes extraordinarily difficult uh, because you need pleasurable activities in your life which then begs the question like <laughs> why are we doing some of the things that we're doing um, obviously like some of it's because we have to and so if you have the opportunity in your life to build up uh, like a job that you really enjoy that uh, like activities that you really enjoy, that you have games that you can play with your friends, whether they're board games or video games or whatever. All of those are extraordinarily important. Um, but they can be really taxing too, depending on um, what the situation is. Because most people, whether they like it or not, need a break from doing most things most of the time. Uh, and this goes beyond just sleeping. Uh, I find that, and this is where it's very powerful to do yoga, because yoga most of the time uh, exists in a space of almost complete silence, and you can do that kind of structured rest with other people, 
led in some kind of a class if you don't want to do the research on your own, or you can just like go research yoga technique and yoga poses and yoga breathing and actually do that all yourself, which I found personally to be very powerful because I can do yoga for 45 minutes before bed and sleep better and deeper. That sounds weird. <laughs> um, but so uh, my point is like being able to really create a space for your brain to relax so it's not processing information for a change is extraordinarily important. And I think that part of the reason the go, go, go mentality has um, not only started to come back as a result of the pandemic winding down, but it's been more difficult for people getting back into it is because uh, during uh, like the lockdowns and when we were more forced into particular kinds of distancing, like it's we turned to the internet in order to consume our time because we either weren't working or uh, had other hobbies that we took on. And so the information processing like dramatically ramped up. Or if you weren't able to go hang with folks, it was really easy to watch Netflix or spend time on YouTube or um, like even watch something cool like a documentary. And I'm not saying that like information-based entertainment isn't important. I think it's dramatically powerful. That's something I'm going to talk about in a minute. But in the grand scheme of things, I think it's it, cre it creates an issue if you're processing so much information at one time, you're more likely to be overstimulated. Despite whatever quality that uh, particular narrative or story or quality of information might be, it's not that uh, learning is bad or that um, learning is... Uh, even difficult in some respect because for some folks, yeah, it is about creating that separation in that amount of space. But one of the things I've run into a lot in my life is, especially in rehearsals and stuff, I get, uh, I'd have, this happened a lot when I was a kid too, especially like when I got in, involved in music the first time. Um, almost every teacher I've ever had has told me I will do better when I work less hard. And I don't think I really understood what that meant until maybe this week. Because I, I mean, last summer I practiced euphonium for upwards of 24 hours a week regularly. Um, I had nothing in particular I was working for or any particular projects I was working on. I just played a lot. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, it does in the sense that like, yes, let's always be improving, but like improving with intentionality and with goals is infinitely more powerful than just like improving for the sake of improving or working for the sake of working. And it's really ironic because um, one of the things I've started to notice over the course of this last semester of grad school is that like my ability on the horn is much more profound than I ever gave it credit for. And I'm so concerned with um, being able to do everything in the arsenal at a moment's notice at any second of the day that I actually don't trust myself as a player. And that causes a lot of issues when I'm doing stuff like sight reading, for example, because I get so worried about like, do I have enough time to mentally process everything I want to think about before I have to try to execute something that I don't have time to actually just breathe and just do it? Which then begs the question, like, am I a good and literate musician or am I just like 
extraordinary uh, an extraordinarily conscientious euphonium operator which is kind of an interesting thought experiment uh in as much as like if you just play the pieces that your teacher tells you to are you really creating anything but that's a conversation for another time uh all of this is to say it's like I find myself coming back often to this idea of what's the point and is my input really equaling my output and if it's not why is that and I think in the grand scheme of things like creating a space in order to like have a break and mentally process stuff is really helpful um it becomes difficult though uh especially if you're like me and you don't like spending time in complete silence unless it's in complete silence doing something and this is something I find so interesting like sitting in a quiet room for me uh, if I'm not like reading a book or like painting or drawing or something is extraordinarily difficult but um, I can go run eight miles in dead silence and have no worries in the world that's weird and it makes me feel weird and so then it becomes this wacky question of like, okay, well, how do we take that calmness from the pavement um, and bring it into like my living room? Because it'd be really nice to be able to not feel weird if to sit around without music on or without a podcast on or without watching stand up or feeling like the, I have the need to read a book or play video games and like not be doing something. And it begs the question like where – where is all of this energy coming from and what's the point of it and in the grand scheme of things the answer is i don't know and i wish i did because i think that would be extraordinarily powerful but one thing i have found is this uh, and i think that there's a lot of folks who would agree with some of this sentiment quality of activities coaches quality of thinking and I want to break that down I'm not saying that uh, you should do high quality activities all the time because as I've said before like this is about input and output being directly proportional and so if you're spending an excessive amount of energy you will get fewer results and or poorer results what I mean is if you're trying to become uh, someone who sees strange patterns, then you need to pursue activities that help you see strange patterns. And for me, um, the obligatory uh, reference to all of the Malcolm Gladwell books I've read, I think is a really great starting point if you want to learn to do something like that a little better. Because um, Mr. Gladwell is the epitome of creative thinkers especially as far as like trying to understand the world goes and he has so many books about like finding weird trends and reading human beings and why people behave certain things or I'm, I'm reading his book outliers right now and it's really fascinating one of the things he talks about is like there's some arbitrary things about the way humanity and society have structured life that have profound consequences to how uh, some people succeed and others fail. For example, in Canada, the national age cutoff for uh, junior hockey is January 1st. 
So if you're born after January 1st, you have to go with uh, the next group of kids uh, as far as age goes. Which, what's interesting about that is uh, this has resulted in the a profound majority, a profound majority of uh, under-18s hockey all-stars being born in January, February, and March. Uh, why is this significant? Well, simple. Um, if you're in a hockey division and you're nine months older than some of the kids in your group, that means you have nine months of mental and physical and neurological development that they don't have. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but at that stage in your life, it very much is, especially when you're that young. Uh, I mean, you can see this in, it's exaggerated more in little kids, but I mean, when you consider the amount of mental and physical growth that happens between like birth and age two, it's profound. I mean, like two-year-olds in a lot of cases are starting to speak and stuff. So it, I mean, like that's like, we're talking about whole development of language and like going from like oral stimulation to like some gross motor skill development. That's a profound amount of time, and that's just two years. So in in terms of – and well, and I mean if you wanted to take this in, into like um, a physiological sense for like – for adults, for example. So um, let's say I start training for a marathon, and I train uh, – I do a 16-week program, and then I take a month off, and then I do another 16-week program. That person at the end of those nine months compared to who I was when I started is almost guaranteed a physiologically different human being, especially if I've done any kind of heat training because uh, my body is going to be engineered to move efficiently in a straight line or sometimes semi-curved lines if I've trained on trails. But as far as like putting one foot in front of the other on pavement um, and especially if I've like done a, a degree of mixed interval training, like if I did sprints some days and I did uh, like super long distance some days and I did mid-length distance some other days and I stretched every day uh, and especially if I ran in the heat. I mean like uh, when, when I trained for my first marathon, my resting heart rate near the latter stages of marathon training was like 42 beats per minute. Most, like, most really healthy people have between, like, 50 and 70. So, like, if if we're going to start looking at, like, like, to give you an idea of how outrageously low my heart rate was, I couldn't donate blood anymore. Like, I, I went to the blood bank to donate blood, and they turned me away because they said, this is against our ethical guidelines. We can't take blood from you. <laughs> so, like... Imagine doing that twice in a year, even with even with a month off. You're physiologically a different person. So having that amount of brain development, um, just as far as hockey, can be uh, super, super profound in just in terms of like um, how many hours you're able to log on, uh, on the ice, whether you're able to play pickup games with more aggressive teens, like just in your neighborhood, um, because you're bigger and stronger and can run with the bigger dogs, so to speak. 
And this can be very powerful because like the most important thing is quality of hours logged. Anybody who's trying to get better at anything will tell you that. And so if you're playing with better players, you will get better because you have to, you, you're forced to read the game faster and understand the technique that's required in order to keep pace with those people to survive. And so um, in applying this back to like the creative thinking thing, so Gladwell looked at all this data and um, found it extraordinarily interesting because he saw the pattern of like, why are so many professional or like semi-professional hockey players that are coming up from these all-stars, like born in January and February and March. That's so strange. And so if you want to start doing creative thinking stuff, um, start doing creative things. Uh, the best thing you can do, I think, obviously you can read, play games like board games and stuff that require you to look at lots of elements at a time. Uh, I think Settlers of Catan is great for this, especially if you start trying to get into the mentality of thinking one or two steps ahead of the people you're playing against. I don't think a lot of people do that. And this is where visualization becomes really powerful because if you can start processing in your brain ahead of time, like, well, if this happens, then I'll do this. If this happens, then I'll do this. If this happens, then I'll do this. Then you can start thinking ahead uh, in really powerful ways. And then um, when that's accessible, if you're a musician and you're trying to work on your sight reading, then you're in the habit of looking ahead. And so you just start looking ahead in the music rather than just looking ahead in uh, whatever the game is in order to like process your strategy. Um, I started doing more painting this summer because uh, I, I like the idea of making things and I, I used to do a lot of visual arts when I was younger and I've kind of fallen away from it and my cousin who's an art therapist is, uh, talks about like uh, a lot about how powerful it is um, to be able to create regularly and so one of the things that I, I just started to think about was like well I'd, I'd like to have more color on the walls of my apartment and I can take these paintings with me and it's a little less expensive than trying to buy art from people. And I can learn to do this on YouTube. And it can just be a fun thing that I do in my free time that I can do in either in silence or with stand-up on or listening to music. And um, just really trying to make something interesting. And it, it doesn't take a whole lot of brain power either, especially if you do something super simple like an acrylic pouring, which can render really interesting and profound abstract art efficiently and easily and it, like it doesn't take a whole lot to get pretty good at it and there's loads of information online about like little tips and tricks to make your paintings better or how to get started and it can be really really special and really powerful to be able to make stuff like that and really raise the level of not only like your artistic thinking, but of your living space. And then the next thing I would do is um, try to force yourself into situations where you have to do creative things with a hefty amount of limits. Uh, this is something I picked up in my composition lessons in my undergraduate degree. And I think it's really powerful to be able to, and, and broadly speaking, I think this is what creativity really stems from is, how do you write yourself into a corner and then figure your own way out of it? And what rules do you have to break uh, intentionally in order to make that happen? Or what it rules do you, will you break intentionally for the, the purposes of making an artistic statement? Which is, of course, extraordinarily powerful because you're breaking rules to make an artistic statement. Um, 
And so like my my composition teacher, Roy Magnuson, would have he'd give me assignments like I want you to write a piece that feels like it's getting faster without writing in a cello rondo and you can only use two different note values. So you can only use like quarter notes and eighth notes, but you have to decide um, what note values you're doing before you start writing the piece. And doing something like that was extraordinarily difficult. And uh, and he'd also give me like a duration limit. So like the piece wasn't allowed to be more than a minute and I had to write it for piano and I was only allowed to use very specific ranges of the piano notes. And so this kind of, those kinds of limitations, like when you really have to swim your way through those, you become a really interesting creative problem solver and the results that you have end up being or at least seemingly dramatically more creative and more interesting than if you didn't. And so um, trying to impose those kinds of limitations when I sit down to write a piece of music can be very, very powerful for me because then it's how do I solve this puzzle with all of these wild limitations I've set and what rules do I need to break in order to make the artistic statement that I want to make? And then once pen goes to paper and the concept map is drawn and notes go on the page, the question becomes, is this efficiently made and intuitively sequenced? And does it make sense? And is it powerful? Uh, and if you can do those things, um, it can be really, really effective in terms of making like really profound art. And so in this kind of a case, um, especially when all of that is so accessible, like taking time away to be able to let yourself rest, it gets really tough, especially if you're like me and you want to create stuff all of the time because I'm conscientious of the idea that the hours logged is the greatest indicator of success. Uh, and so not overdoing it and not logging so many hours that I'm exhausted and my idea of what is efficiently made and intuitively sequenced and thoughtful um, diminishes. And that gets really tough. Because uh, there's so much information to consume. And there's so much about the world. And so many interesting people that I want to uh, come into contact with. Uh, it, it, honestly, it's, uh, it's really tough. And I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out how to work out all of that. Because it's very confusing. Um, having some things to relax um, that are not creative are obviously really powerful. The thing I find to me that is the most powerful in terms of just like having something that is uh, relaxing and fulfilling, um, something with very compelling narrative, whether it's... Um, it can be a video game. It can be a film. It can be a TV show. And sometimes you want to watch stuff that's super low energy. Um, but you can find things that are low energy that are compelling story. Uh, and, and broadly speaking, I think if there's really compelling story with lots of integral stuff going on, um, does it take energy? Yes. But at the same time, it can be extraordinarily fulfilling. Help you see the world differently. Uh, for me, right now, the show that's coming to mind is Better Call Saul. And I'm devastated that it's in its last season. But the thing I love so much about the shows that Vince Gilligan has made, especially like Breaking Bad also, is that like all of these painstaking things that he's curated in order to make 
the show feels so palpably real. Like, this could be some wacky lawyer that lives in the town that you live in, or that Walt and his family are the family that lives next door to you. It's just so crazy and so interesting and so compelling and so real and it's very heavy and and honestly kind of difficult to watch sometimes better call Saul a little less so because it's a little more of a dark comedy especially in the earlier seasons but like I mean there's there's the scene in Breaking Bad when um Walter Jr. is arguing with Skyler about like how they buy like how she bought Raisin Bran and they they the cereal they get is Raisin Bran Crunch like, who puts that in a TV show? Vince Gilligan does. Why? Because it's it increases the realism radically to a point where, like, you almost get freaked out a little bit. Like, oh my gosh, this could be my family or the family next door to me. And that's so funky and so cool. But that's, it can be very taxing. And so having, having things that are a little more low-key, I find to be really powerful. Um, what am I doing to relax this summer? Um... Well, that's a big question. Uh, I'm trying to do yoga pretty regularly. I'm playing soccer two days a week. I'm playing in a community band. Um, just trying to have things that are recreational. And, like, painting is recreational, too. Um, there's a group I play Settlers of Catan with um, once or twice a week. And all of that's fine. Um, but it all sounds really busy. And so in the grand scheme of things, like... When this is where it comes back to like this whole idea of the summer grind where it's like, oh, I'll have time to do all of this stuff that I want to do. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, if input and output are directly proportional, like what are you doing to really recreate yourself? And what are you doing to make sure you can mentally process stuff? And ironically, this comes back to a couple episodes ago, like this idea of sustainability being dramatically underrated because I think a lot of people kind of romanticize this idea of like throwing themselves into something like boot camp for a little bit and then hauling themselves out of it. Can that be profound for people at some points in their life? Yeah, but you can't do that all the time. And what's crazy is like there's a lot of people who delude themselves into thinking they can't. I'm exactly one of those people. Like this spring semester, I'm. There are times I wonder legitimately how I managed to get through it because I was waking up and going to the gym for two and a half hours most mornings, and then coming home, like uh, throwing down some food, cleaning up, and then going to class for like the rest of the day, and either like having rehearsals or classes that I taught, and then like, and in some cases I had class till nine p.m. It's just ridiculous. And trying to create space and write good music and turn like during all of that. Like, did I create some space for that? Absolutely. But um, like when I talked about uh, sustaining the injury at the gym and like how that kind of sidelined me from a lot of physical activity for a month, like that was the point where I realized I had to cut back a little bit. And even then, I was still relentless in this pursuit of like insane growth. And the crazy part is like something like 80% of the minutes of music that I wrote were during the 10 days where I really had to take an intense rest um, from almost everything and like couldn't go to the gym at all and was like especially because like how bruised my quadratus laborum was like really needed to stretch it every day often several times in order to make sure that I could hold and operate my euphonium and then as a result of that 
uh, being so problematic and like really needing to rewire a lot of the physicality of my playing um, in order to make it more sustainable. I had to relearn whole sections of like all of this euphonium stuff I was doing. And now laying out it like, or laying it out like this, it's like, well, wow, Andrew, why were you so deluded into thinking that like you could do all of this stuff and not just like take a break for a little bit because that's definitely what you needed. And I think that's a really great point. When it's funny because like the the try so hard mentality carries over into a lot of different things. It's not just about the quantity of things that I do. Or and I feel like this is the same way for and maybe I'm weird in that like this isn't something other people deal with. But like I had a lot of people like at music camp and stuff, people who would lead sectionals and things, they'd always tell me like they'd pull me aside after rehearsal sometimes and they'd say like, Hey, um, when he asks for more from the tenors, Andrew, like He's talking to everybody except you. And that's a really interesting, like, not, especially looking back on it, that's a very interesting comment to make. And kind of a compliment, but also kind of not. And I think that's very interesting. I don't know. I think there's a lot to glean from that and a lot to process from that, too. But so, in in terms of, like... If you want to do more creative thinking, um, things that force you to use strategy and to think outside the box and think outside your comfort zone uh, are really some of the best ways to do this. Um, obviously, there's the board game. Honestly, I think more people should play board games. I think they'd make you smarter and they make you like – they force you to socialize and interact with other people and all of that is very, very good. Just mentally and emotionally. It's very powerful stuff. Uh, the other thing I would think about also is uh, challenging your brain to think in ways that either it hasn't or doesn't. Um, for example, I'm uh, working through the Ploger Method workbook right now. And there's so much about being able to hold a clear vision of two octaves of piano keys in your head and being able to go through scales and intervals on that um, just held in your brain while you're taking in visual stimuli and in some cases looking at music on the page. And that's so much information for your brain to interpret at one time. But... Even though that's super, super difficult, what that's training you to do, if you can do that um, while looking at music on the page, then suddenly like taking in that much information is something your brain becomes used to. And so when if like you're sight reading, for example, it's easier for you to not only track intervals because you have a visual map in your brain of what's going on and something that's semi-tactile and completely uh, imprinted into your brain that tells you that when you look at a perfect fourth in mezzo-soprano clef, you know that that's a perfect fourth in mezzo-soprano clef and what that should sound like and some degree of almost perfect relative pitch. Uh, it's You can start processing so many other things around that because that's not something you have to look up like and actually think through anymore and i equate it to like how long would it take you to read a book 
or even a play, because plays are really short in terms of like the amount of text that you have to actually read. Um, imagine how long it would take you to read a play if you had to look up every third word in the dictionary or on, even on Google. That would take so much time, a redonkulous amount of time. And so being able to objectify pitch and objectify like music theory in, into something that your brain can have cognitive literacy about uh, is something I think more people need to have a baseline of in order to pursue growth more efficiently because doing that work just opens up a lot of things that your brain doesn't have to think about anymore. And so you can focus on for example, if you're a brassman's player, creating efficient, glorious sounds. But that's a grind too, because, I mean, obviously you have to log hours in order to make that happen. And so uh, the question, I think, at some point becomes like, what are the priorities? And it's difficult to set those, especially if you're somebody like me who wants to do like everything. There's just not enough hours in the day. And so the question becomes like, what are you going to prioritize? And I think that's tough. Especially when I have so many activities in my life that I really enjoy. It's like trying to, trying to really create space for an opportunity to actually relax. Let my brain actually process stuff. I've said this a lot in this podcast already, but I have a tendency to really take on way too much. And uh, it's not like I can cut back on all of that in one day. Um, I'm probably not going to get really good at cutting back until this time next year. Because sustained changes take long, long periods to actually incorporate. But we'll just have to see. But um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of excited to see what this brings. And what my life looks like when I'm not doing so much. And kind of ironic that I say that at a point where I'm starting to put out more podcasts every month. Uh, but I felt like this was really interesting. And like, especially connecting it back with the MoreTech episode. Because there was so much about, like, there's so many things that clicked at MoreTech. And in, in reality, it was a very interesting and very helpful break from everything that I had going on. In as much as it was still, like... A pretty exhausting process as most conferences are but like four days of really intense loads of music stuff um as like an island of time in the summer i think is dramatically more sustainable and interesting especially since there's so many people that i got to hang with there that i don't see on a regular basis especially people that i really enjoy being around and so uh well and it's been cool because um especially after the last episode, a few people have reached out and I'm I'm really excited to be able to say that we're going to have a couple more guests coming on the podcast um, within the next month that um, I'm really looking forward to have conversations with. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, and there's, I have, well, I made like a bunch of pages of notes at Murtech, but um, there's a couple that I think specifically in like tuba and euphonium or like brasswinds based episodes that are going to be very powerful in terms of thinking about um, the way we approach some of our pedagogy. 
um, and why certain things need to be included that sometimes aren't. I think it's going to be very interesting. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be fun. That's all for this week. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.